Hello and welcome to our Maritime Impact podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Nyhus, Director Environment for Maritime at DNV. Efforts to decarbonize the shipping industry continue at a pace. In this third series, we will continue to explore how the decisions taken by the IMO and other regional authorities aimed at reducing greenhouse gas emissions will impact the maritime sector. We now want to take a look at how the maritime industry can support a zero carbon supply chain and the role that certain segments can take in the journey towards decarbonization. We'll consider the particular challenges facing tankers, gas carriers, offshore wind vessels, and the container segment. To do this, I have invited some of DNV's segment directors who are working with customers over these specific maritime challenges onto the podcast to explore the topics in depth. This episode will take a deeper look at one of the most exciting up-and-coming industries, offshore wind. How does it relate to shipping? What's the ambition to decarbonize? And what role can it play to support the maritime industry to decarbonize fully? To find out, our segment director for special ships, Arnstein Eknes, is joining me to discuss. We hope you enjoy the episode, and now on to the show. Arnstein, many thanks for joining me today. Offshore wind farms are among the most interesting recent developments in the journey towards decarbonization. These complex operations have close links to the maritime industry as potentially one of the key renewable energy sources that can help to decarbonize shipping and many other industries. But at the same time, offshore wind farms require support or installation vessels that are exempt from the IMO GHG regulations, because as we all know, the IMO finds it difficult to regulate these different ship types, which are mostly staying in fixed positions rather than sailing from A to B carrying cargo as many commercial vessels do. But despite this, the vessels appear to be much faster in the uptake of advanced technology and fuels than other segments. Could you explain that to me? Yes, Eric, I'll I'll do my best. Uh, I think if you think about the wind farms that are being um, installed out there now in different uh, areas, different cities, typically in Europe first, uh, of course, the whole idea with the wind farm is that it will be connected to renewable industry. It's uh, w- when the wind is blowing, it will be producing energy. And of course, then the energy company, they would like to produce and sell to the customers as clean energy as possible. So um, the long-term goals for these energy companies is actually to offer clean, renewable energy. uh, And for that, they need the help for the whole supply chain. And that means that the energy companies, they are really pushing the supply chain here, the owners of of the vessels, to go faster than what IMO is doing, simply because they expected from the value chain. They would like to give that promise to the customer but also because those that are investing today in renewables, they are asking for more transparency on, on uh, I should say, scope three emissions. It's not enough to show that what you are selling to your customer is clean, but you also need to show that the value chain delivering this to um, your own business is actually doing their part of reducing emissions. Um, and then we have this fact that... Uh, these vessels, when they are operating in a wind farm, they are operating a defined geographical area, meaning they know where to trade. They normally don't need a lot of energy when operating in that area, so it's easier for them to convert to, to cleaner energy sources than if they had to carry a lot of energy on board. Uh, they can actually go to shore and refuel quite often if they want. Or, uh, like is being planned now, um, I think we will see offshore charging coming relatively soon. 
meaning that they can get the, the energy directly from the wind farm. Of course, this is not something that you can do when you're constructing a wind farm, but when, when the wind farm is there and you are going to provide technicians, support, provide service, and etc., to keep the wind farm running, uh, why not take the energy directly from the wind farm through an offshore charging plug? So um, there are many reasons why it's easier to do in the offshore segments than in traditional deep sea shipping. Now, when we're, when we're looking at what kind of fuels uh, these uh, vessels might be opting for and leaving uh, uh, offshore charging aside for the moment, at least, do you see an indication of what kind of fuels they will eventually opt for? Are we looking at uh, something totally novel or are we looking at things that already are being talked about for other existing ship segments? Uh, I think that uh, when, when the rest of the shipping industry, they the challenge for the rest of the shipping is really to get rid of uh, what you can call the heavy fuels uh, to, towards uh, lighter marine products first and then maybe towards natural gas and then gradually towards something which is decarbonized. That could be ammonia, it could be hydrogen, it could be um, methanol, for instance. What we do see is that the uh, the offshore wind segment, in particular the service operation vessels and the wind turbine vessels, uh, I should say uh, what we call the, the crew transfer vessels, those that are transporting technicians in and out from port every day, they want to move faster to what is uh, a more, I should say, end goal of really decarbonizing. So they are looking towards uh, methanol today. Uh, they are looking at ammonia. Um, they are also looking at different uh, types of hydrogen. Uh, I'm just coming back from North Shipping uh, where we have signed a contract today about uh, constructing a, what we call a liquid organic hydrogen compound, which is hydrogen diluted into a solution of oil. Uh, so you can carry hydrogen in different ways on board your vessel. It need not only be pressurized or liquefied. Um, and I think it's quite interesting to see that these kind of technologies are being piloted and tested first in the offshore wind segment, simply because they are offering a complete journey towards uh, full decarbonization. But then also, Eric, there is, a, there is one difference between uh, the wind segment here and um, those vessels that are operating in a wind farm. Since they don't need to sail long distances, they can also cope quite well with batteries on board if they can charge those batteries frequently enough. So we see that what most existing vessels and every new build that have been signed for the last few years, what they include is new technology, which is uh, hybrid. They are preparing uh, the setup on board for more variable, uh, I should say, power generation. They have batteries on board or some kind of energy storage systems. They are using new technology in a way which is preparing them for more modular use of, of alternative fuel. So even if some of them are running on diesel oil today, they are easily prepared and more easy to convert to what you can call multi-fuel later. And again, the predominant fuel we see now coming first, hydrogen, I would say methanol, and I would also say ammonia, although uh, that is still on the drawing board. We haven't seen any any firm contracts yet being confirmed on ammonia for, for the wind segment. Now, that, that's of course interesting, and it's also in the sense that ammonia for methanol, for a lot of the other fuels, we're all, always talking about hydrogen as a fundamental feedstock. Uh, so if you use it directly, if you use the energy for alternative fuels, it really comes down to hydrogen in, uh, in to a great degree. But as we all know, of course, producing hydrogen is quite energy intensive. You, you use uh, more than a little energy to, to, to get the electricity into liquid form, as it were. So with a growing 
pressure to get the alternatives into the fuel mix and the scale up of the challenge that we see here uh, and the need to do things quickly. Uh, how much wind power is really available now and how, how quickly will we, will we be able to really make a, a dent on the demand that, we, that we're looking at? Will there be enough offshore wind energy to facilitate the energy transition? I think is maybe the basic question I'm trying to ask here. It's a good question because we know that the, as long as the sun is shining, um, there will always be solar energy. Uh, there will always be wind. The, the backside of this is we, we never actually know what is the weather from day to day. So, so you can't really rely and trust on wind energy or solar energy alone. So uh, I think we have to, to redefine the way we are looking at energy, that this is not just from one source and then it's a matter of burning it and, and using it. It's a matter of taking the energy which is there, available when it's coming. And at times today, relatively often actually, it's too much wind in certain areas. For instance, in Denmark, too much wind to feed the, the total Danish population. And that means that the electricity prices are going very low. It actually means that in some cases, then you have a negative energy price. The, the utility company are paying you to use energy. And then you can imagine if you have an area locally where there is too much electricity available, why not use part of that surplus electricity to produce, for instance, hydrogen? Uh, and then you can look at hydrogen as uh, stored energy. Uh, and this way of thinking is, uh, I think, how we have to to approach this uh, this aspect, not just to produce electricity to use on land, but also to use uh, renewable electricity to produce the type of energy carriers that we could actually uh, use to to replace fossil fuels. Um, you, you asked also about the the amount of energy. Um, the International Energy Association, they did a study back in 2018 uh, and 19. And what they concluded was that uh, at that time, it is potentially enough wind energy, offshore wind energy out there to feed the whole world's electricity demand 18 times. Meaning, uh, if we build out everything which is the potential, we can have plenty of energy available also to, to start replacing for fossil fuels. The problem, though, is that, uh, of course, that would not happen because uh, we have to balance other interests also using ocean space. There are fisheries out there. There are other traffic that would like to use the ocean space. So we can't kind of put the restriction on big areas saying that, no, we will only have windmills everywhere when, uh, where it's close to, to people or where we, can, uh, where we can take this offshore energy. So, so it is a balancing act to kind of build out the wind farms closer to where the big consumers are. And if you have an area where there is a lot of wind, a surplus of wind, then it makes sense to see how can you use that surplus of energy to produce either synthetic fuels or hydrogen or ammonia or, or whatever in order to kind of give added value to the electricity which otherwise just is lost. So I think it's really... A, it's, it's a sign that we are moving away from a fossil uh, dependency on fossil energy uh, and that the energy transition is not only about what are the new sources, but also how are we going to change the system of storing and using energy. And that is where we see the, the biggest change now in, in uh, the wind fleet.
Mm. Well, I, I guess that moving away from a dependency on fossil energy is really what this is all about, of course. Um, whether it's for political reasons or just for climate or for climate change reasons, it's uh, it's a good direction to go. But of course, looking at the figure or thinking about the figures that you mentioned here, it's clear that uh, the sheer number of wind wind farms, the sheer number of windmills, the generators, turbines, whatever you want to call them, that are going to be needed is is, is quite significant. So. What that, of course, then leads to is a huge need for vessels to be able to not only install, but also service and maintain these facilities. And as you mentioned earlier, they will be short-range operations in most cases, but still the sheer number of them will be massive. So how do you think um, think about the shipyards in this context? How, how can they actually adapt to uh, providing the necessary supply, uh, the necessary vessel types? Because I would assume we're not talking about only one kind of vessel type uh, in, in this context. No, you're fully correct, Eric. I think it is um, uh, shipyards today, they are used to think building ships. They are used to things that uh, the ship building is cyclical. Um, they have been forced to kind of rethink, in particular since 2014, those that are working offshore. Uh, in 2014, the oil price dropped dramatically. Uh, and then certainly it was an abundance of offshore vessels. The good thing for the wind industry is, though, that when the wind industry really started to work in Europe, then there were plenty of off other offshore vessels available. And you can imagine that before you can build a wind farm, you need someone to, to map out the seabed conditions. Where shall you locate the foundations? How shall they look like? So, so you can think that a wind farm, the turbine that you see, everything which is above the waterline, that is standardized as much as possible. But everything below waterline, if this is bottom fixed, it is really tailor-made. Because the, the bottom is not flat. It is not static at all. It's moving. Maybe there are boulders there. There are sand. There are muddy conditions, different water depths. So each wind turbine foundation is tailor-made. And for that, we need detailed maps. We need bottom sampling. We need vessels that are able to install the foundations. We need guard vessels to be sure that the fishermen are not kind of entangled into this uh, construction work when it's happening. We need cable layers to, to connect the equipment. We need uh, subsea stations maybe. We need transformation equipment to, to make sure that the electricity is having the proper voltage and so on before being transported long distances. So, so you can imagine there are anchor handles involved. There are typically crew vessels involved to get people out there. There are heavy lift vessels for lifting foundations. The foundations could weigh 500 tons, 1,000 tons. They could even weigh more. And then you need, of course, those vessels that can lift the wind turbines in place, the wind farm installation vessels. And, and they have been struggling over the last two decades. What is the future cargo? How big is a wind turbine going to be? Because on land, there is a limit for how big wind turbines you can install on land. Because simply you the capacity to transport them on a road, maybe under uh, inside a tunnel or over a bridge or things like that, that's automatically limiting the size of the components. When you go offshore, you can go bigger. And, and that is why this a lot of the manufacturing size will move from inland, they will move towards shipyards. So I hope and think that in the future, many shipyards, they will find a good business in building wind farm structures, foundations, blades, uh, nacelles, etc. And then the imagination right now is the, is the limit. So we have structures with blade length of more than 105 to 107 meters. The turbines used to be 15 years ago, maybe of an average size of around 2.5 uh, megawatts. Today, um, some of the biggest 
wind turbines being installed, they are of a size of 15 megawatts. And there are projects planned up to 20 megawatts per turbine. So, I mean, we are talking huge numbers. We are talking lifting heights of maybe more than 220 to 250 meters, which is higher than the Eiffel Tower. And this is going to happen at sea. And if you're going to be afloat when you do this, that's difficult. That means that you need to build large vessels, maybe with jack-up structures standing on the bottom. Uh, and, and you can understand that this is getting big, it's getting complex, uh, just for the installation purposes. So that is also why that there is a trend now, not only to look towards bottom fixed wind, but also how floating wind, if you can keep all of this floating, then you don't have to do all of these tailor-made solutions towards the bottom. Uh, you still need the cabling, you still need a lot of offshore activity, but you can do more of the completion of work at shipyards or uh, close to shore where it's cheaper to work than what it is actually offshore. And then you can tow it out. So this is a huge industry. This is like an orchestrated effort. Uh, and that is also why it's very impressive what happened last year. Uh, China, they took over the position as number one country having most installed wind uh, ahead of UK. Um, and in total last year, it was 18.5 gigawatts installed. And to put that in context, uh, five years ago, the accumulated installed wind power was around 20 to 23 gigawatts. Last year alone, 18.5 came online. Next year, or this year, it's planned for nine. But the predictions towards 2050 is actually that more than 1,000 gigawatts will be installed. So this is really an industry now scaling up and, and getting global. Massive developments indeed, Einstein. It's uh, quite fascinating because in w many ways, this is it's not ha actually exactly happening under the radar, but it's a development I think that a lot of us aren't really aware of when it comes to the sheer scale of the engineering efforts required to make this uh, make this work. Now, um, I, I want to try to hook this a little bit into uh, some of the maritime regulations uh, that we see com coming um, our, our way. And uh, in particular, one we are, of course, looking at is uh, the Alternative Fuels Infrastructure Regulation, which is part of the EU Fit for 55 package. Uh, this also points to the need for fairly massive shore power supply in ports, uh, initially for container and cruise vessels, but then most likely being also expanded to, to other vessels. Uh, we've also seen recently proposals uh, from the European Parliament amending this regulation, where they are saying that, well, all that's well and good, but ports should also be required to make sure that this power is provided from renewable sources. So I, I see a synergy here, to put, to, to put it that way, uh, essentially taking the surplus, uh, the surplus power production you mentioned, and essentially use this as part of the power provisions for uh, for ports, so that ports uh, are able to actually fulfill their potential obligations when it comes to their renew renewable profile. I would see that we offshore wind could potentially support on that end as well. Or, or do you think maybe more likely at today, but well, we never know. Would it actually be more of a case of offshore wind really just feeding into the land grid and then the electrons flow where, where they may? How do you think about this, Einstein? Are the regulations really representing drivers here or is this something that's simply going to happen irrespective of what the EU does on the, on the maritime regulatory perspective here? I think that uh, the 
in Europe, we, we like to think that regulations do matter. Uh, and, and if we can agree a, a collective way or a collective approach, um, then we can, of course, act stronger if we go together. So if everyone are acting in the same direction, then we can have stronger interaction and stronger actions. And, and of course, this with um, the energy transition is not just about the source of the fuel, but it's also about uh, electrification drive as such meaning to go electrical is actually more energy effective than to go fossil and first burn the fossil fuel in order to create electricity if electricity is is what you really want to have in, in as an end result so it's more energy efficient to go as short distance as possible from the source meaning wind or solar into electrical power and the best way of use of that electricity is, of course, to, to have it directly fed to the population through uh, the grid or directly fed to the industry so that they can have a direct use of it instead of converting it to an industry, to an energy carrier like hydrogen and then again using it. Um, on the other hand, there are, when you're looking at the shipping industry as such, um, when you're sailing and leaving the port, then you're on your own. And if you don't bring enough energy with you, then you will not come to the next port. So you, you need to design every energy system so that it's kind of self-sufficient with regard to carrying energy with you. And, and when we are looking at all the offshore activities where these wind developments are taking place right now, quite many of them, they are actually happening in areas where there are oil and gas activities today. In some of these areas, the regulatory bodies, they are talking about electrification of existing oil and gas fields in order to decarbonize a fossil industry. Uh, why take that electricity from land out offshore if you could generate that electricity by offshore wind close to the same units? So that's one aspect. Another aspect is that when the regulations are in place in Europe, it will create a level playground, a level uh, field playground for everyone. So I think it's very good that we do get expectation and, uh, and requirements about shore power, for instance. All offshore vessels today, at least the new builds, they are built and designed for uh, having shore power connection. The next step will, of course, be that they can also have an offshore connection, that they can charge anywhere where this charging plug is available. Um, if you go to the United States, then it's, uh, it's a bit different picture because uh, there it is not so much about the regulatory aspect driving technology. There it is more market-driven. Uh, and typically private companies and investors are much more funding this industry than like in Europe, where it is banks or governments or, uh, I should say, nations that are coming with a mission. So the, the drivers here will depend a bit uh, on where you are. In Europe, uh, regulatory can create a level flag playground. Uh, I think that's very good with regard to to building out the infrastructure which we need with regard to shore power. But I think we have to be careful so that we are not taking the shore power from onshore. We should make sure that the energy being provided in shore power is actually coming from offshore, from offshore wind, uh, because that would be more cost effective, I think, in the longer run. And it will definitely create less conflict with uh, local people and local communities. Uh, of course, if you have wind farms in your own neighborhood, uh, they are requiring space they are coming also with some some negative impacts with regard to to wildlife um, it really has to be balancing how you're integrating these into the society so if you can have them clustered in an efficient wind farm offshore where there is more wind better conditions for stable energy production that would be better to all i think it's not an easy answer to those kind of reflections that you're leading me to know uh, eric but i think this is uh, we are redefining the energy system 
an, an offshore wind is definitely a more stable contributor also with regard to supply of energy than, for instance, what sun is in Europe. Uh, it does not take many cloudy days before or rainy days before you would realize that we can't be too much dependent on, on solar energy in, in Europe. With all of these developments, Einstein, all the all the things that are needed uh, on on the technology side, on the policy side, on the regulatory side, uh, commercial, uh, financial, not not least, we haven't really talked about the sheer sheer amount of money that is going to be needed in this space to fund the investments, which is not insignificant. Um, I think we could go on for a long time discussing all of these things in in greater detail, but um, in the interest of um, of time i guess when you're looking a few years ahead say five ten years um w- what kind of final thoughts would you have for our listeners where do you see this field being uh, in the, the not too distant future will it really have blossomed or are we going to see linear growth are we going to be seeing exponential growth how is it going to play out in the near future do you think I think if we if we go back to the offshore vessel, Sarah, the beauty of an offshore vessel is that it's relatively small. Um, it uh, is if this is a, a vessel which is typically providing service to a wind farm, then it is not sailing at high speed all the time. It will sail to a wind to a windmill. It will maybe connect to that windmill, meaning it will have a very transient load picture on how it's going to use the energy. And that make it a perfect candidate for thinking modular. I think we will see a future on these vessels, which is preparing, getting away from only trusting on on fossil fuels to a much more diversified use of uh, of energy sources. I think we will see higher degree of electrification. All these vessels, they will have some kind of energy storage uh, embedded. And that is also what we need, actually, in, in our land-based power grid in the future, like you mentioned, now that. Um, if we are going to get away from coal, from uh, maybe reduce the, the exposure on, on nuclear or at least on coal and on oil, then we need to connect to renewables, which we can't trust the same way as we can uh, with the, the fossil fuel sources. So we need more energy storage. We need a different power grid stability. And all of this can be tested out, actually, and and built step by step when we are building these wind farms. I think we will see a, what you'll say, field by field development. And then we are connecting these fields to the onshore grid. Uh, and then I think that the challenge we have in Europe, in particular, in not only in Europe, but uh, in many coastal states, is that where if the, if the vessels, if the deep sea vessels are going to need a lot of energy sailing internationally, uh, and all of that energy is kind of coming from new uh, hydrogen-based or ammonia-based or methanol-based, then we are competing with quite many other industries that also would like to clean up the act. So I think the competition here uh, towards new fuels, um, that is something that is difficult to predict. I think the test bed for all of this is happening right now in the, in the wind farms. The test bed for finding out which fuels can work which technology is sufficiently reliable. It's a perfect testbed to to do that close to shore where you have access to technicians. There are plenty of electricians now out there in the the North Sea, for instance. There are a few hundred thousand people working in the wind industry in Europe alone, day by day, full day work. So 
this is not a small industry anymore, but what they all have in common is that they are connecting new renewable sources every day. They are testing how to make this safely connected. And in the long run, they also provide a kind of energy security, I would say, because you, you're becoming less dependent on one source alone and you become more, uh, I should say, connected to a variation of different sources and the variation of different opportunities, which is again fed by the nature, um, not in a, in a negative way, but in a positive way, by renewables. So I think that this is a, it's a perfect test bed. It's a perfect laboratory for the rest of shipping. Uh, and that is why it's so exciting to work with this, uh, checking out all the new technologies that are coming and trying to find good solutions that are not only working for the, for the ships, but that are also working for the end users that can provide this kind of decarbonized footprint, which they are looking for. Thank you, Arnstein. This has been great. Really interesting to uh, to get your insights on this, and you know, just to f- capture the some of the key takeaways from uh, from the maritime perspective, at least. Um, one, of course, is that the offshore wind segment is uh, one to watch. It's uh, potentially one of the key renewable sources of energy. Uh, but also, as I think you've demonstrated eloquently, it really is a front-runner in the uptake of alternative fuels, energy efficiency, uh, and, and technologies. Uh, so that, that, that's, that's one, I guess. From the maritime industry perspective, one aspect also is, of course, uh, how the industry as such can adapt to the uh, needed massive uptake of offshore wind vessels, um, how we can get the shipyards and system suppliers to adapt to the needs of the fast emerging vessel types, get uh, get the stuff built and get it uh, operationalized, of course. From an IMO perspective, uh, which we haven't really touched on, uh, one of the things we see today, of course, is that these vessels are not really captured by many of the regulations. Um, and there will be a drive, I think, uh, for the IMO and other stakeholders to actually work out how to track these vessels' energy efficiency so that they, these vessels which are providing uh, green energy also themselves are energy efficient and increasingly so over time. Um, and, and finally, just to hook it in back into the EU again, uh, the, the onshore power supply demand that we will be seeing coming in the EU over the next decade or so, uh, we see that offshore wind farms may end up playing a key supportive role here as well. Uh, so again, Arnstein, really appreciate your insights. Thanks a lot for uh, being able to join me today. Um, and uh, maybe we'll talk again in the not too distant future. I hope so, Eric. Thanks. This was fun. Thank you for joining us for this episode. The offshore wind segment is in a unique position in the maritime industry and our discussion with Arnstein has revealed interesting areas where it can play a role in our journey towards decarbonization. Because of this, it's important that the maritime industry also does what it can to support the growth of the sector, while of course considering the wider implication of the developments. You've been listening to the Maritime Impact podcast from DNB with me, Eric Nayus. Please join us for our next episode where we will focus on the challenges facing the container segment. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to give us a rating or a review. Thank you for listening.